Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. So welcome to yet another Performance Matters series. Bob Mosier here, as I was introduced in the intro. It is wonderful to have you all back here. We so appreciate you listening to these. We hope you find value out of each of them. And this particular episode, we are excited to go into one of our most popular series of the Performance Matters podcast, and that is Experience Matters. And today we have a wonderful gentleman, a young leader that Con and I admire and have watched grow into this in such a remarkable way, and his team, Scott Schmolt. He is the training manager at UMR, which is a uh, subsidiary division part of, he'll give us more of that in a bit, the larger United Health Company. So Scott, it is great to have you here. We're honored to have you on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Bob. I appreciate it so much. Well, we're excited to hear your story, my friend. Like I said, we get a lot of wonderfully experienced, a little more senior folks than yourself in this journey in organizations, and that's wonderful. They tell such a great story. At the same time, a vast majority of our listeners are fairly young, candidly, or they're new to the journey. They're new to their teams. They're new to making the shift to workflow learning, performance support, five moments of need. And we've just watched you do such a masterful job, um, both in yourself buying into this, understanding it, communicating it. Uh, at the same time, nurturing and mentoring your team into it. So, so excited to tell that story. Why don't you start out, my friend, with a little bit about yourself. What was your journey in getting into L&D in the first place? What sort of drew you into this area? Well, I appreciate it, Bob, and I appreciate the young reference. I, again, I feel like I'm getting older all the time, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I always knew that I wanted to be an educator growing up playing sports. A lot of times my coaches would tell me that, you know what, you're a better coach than you are an actual player. And so I always knew that that, that there was going to be uh, some sort of educator track in my future. And being uh, the first class of the new millennium, I was really encouraged to do that because the theory was that after I graduate from high school in 2000 and then get your degree in 2004, 2005, that what would start to happen is the traditionalists and baby boomer generations would start to retire. And so there would be this need for educators and especially for, for male educators in the elementary ed grades. And so that's the, the track that I went down. And as I went through school and got my degree and started to get out into the work world and apply for positions, lo and behold, those, those generations really weren't retiring. They were sticking <laughs> in their positions for a variety of reasons. And so I spent a couple of years, year and a half, doing some long-term sub-positions. I was in a second-grade class, in a 3-4 multi-age class. I did a stint in a sixth-grade class, and the market was just super saturated. My wife, who I have been with for a very long time, we started dating each other as freshmen in high school, and we've been together ever since. She also graduated at the same time as me, got a job in the city that we were living in. And so we didn't really want to move, right? I was I really wanted her to build her career and just starting out. And so I started to look elsewhere and eventually ended up landing a position at what was called at the time WASA Benefits. It's a legacy organization of UMR. Mm -hmm. I started out there as a, a deliverer. I was facilitating classes and moved into instructional design a couple of years after that, did that for 
several years and then moved into a leader role about a decade ago now that I've been leading people here at UMR in the learning and development space. Wow. It's amazing how similar our journeys are. Friend, I was an elementary ed, ed major myself, taught a multi-grade class, through, combined three, four. Did uh, you really? Oh, I didn't know oh that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Told all the same things. This is back in 1978. You were probably 12 or 10, <laughs> but uh, that you know they needed male teachers, which I agree they did, but there'd be this influx of opportunities. And, and sure enough, I find myself like you here. So remarkable, remarkable. A lot of good educators in this business. So my friend, give us a little bit about your team. Give us an overview of your learning organization a little bit and those that you support. For sure, yeah. So UMR is a third-party administrator section of United Healthcare. So United Healthcare is one of the largest insurers, if not the largest insurer of health in the country. And UMR is this branch off from United Healthcare that offers this third-party administrative service. And essentially what that is is our customers come to us and they self-fund for their healthcare. And what we do is, is we administer those benefits for our customers. And my team's primary responsibility really is that of onboarding and helping to initially educate the frontline call agents, claim processors who are responsible for taking care of, of our members. And I would say, in general, we have a pretty traditional L&D team. I've got a mix of people who are technical writers who write policies and procedures. I've got instructional designers who are creating a lot of the content, people who are in the classroom. And then we have coaches as well that uh, are responsible for some after class support. So pretty traditional in terms of our team and the overall support that we provide for our organization. How large is your team, Scott? How many, how many people make up that whole combination there? There's 44 of us total, and that includes several leaders. So it's a um, smaller group of technical writers. I have four technical writers. There's seven instructional designers. We have 21 facilitators and then six coaches. And then the rest are supervisor, a couple managers, and then some support pieces that we have, business analysts on the team and coordinator on the team, stuff like that. So it's, oh. I, it's not... A huge team, but it's not a small. No, no, no. It's actually a little larger than most, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's an, and you've got the gamut covered there, so that's that's impressive. So, what brought you to this guy? You, obviously, like you say, you're kind of chugging along there. You've got a fairly traditional team. The content areas onboarding others are fairly stable and traditional, in in a sense. What turned the corner for you in how you got to this place? What motivated you to take the journey in the first place? Yeah. So much like everybody, March of 2020, I think everybody's going to remember uh, the date that everybody pivoted. And <laughs> really, it, initially, it really was because of COVID. And I believe what happened is that because of COVID and all the awfulness, frankly, that it's brought, there is a bright side to it, which is it ripped wide open and it exposed where I believe most traditional L&D teams, ours included, were deficient. Mm. And, you know, we saw the business need pivot so fast. And because of the traditional approaches that we have taken, we weren't able to meet the needs. Organizations, again, ours included, they had to pivot. They had to pivot quickly because what they were doing was not the same as it was yesterday. And they were resource sharing like they never have been before. And they were really trying to figure out how are we going to maneuver through Uh, essentially a worldwide shutdown. And what we saw was we weren't able to pivot quickly enough. We weren't able to um, meet those business needs. 
in the traditional sense of things. And so that's really what uh, initiated this. And it was primarily centered around the need to go virtual very quickly. Yep. Uh, and that's you know pretty common for everybody in the L&D space. That's what happened, right? Everybody went home and they went home really rapidly and we needed to figure out how to be better in that virtual space. And, and another thing that it did was, and I didn't know the language at the time, I've learned this along the way, it exposed that we're pretty good as an L&D enterprise across not just my team, but everywhere, we're pretty good at meeting the moments of new and more. Mm. And what this also exposed was that we're not all that great of providing what they need at the moment of apply and, and definitely not then solve and change. And so that's what happened. And, and I think executives across all industries recognized it and said, okay, we have to be better at this and you have to be better at it in the virtual space. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really where, where the journey started and why we, we went down this path. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because Khan often says that this is probably the most remarkable apply, solve, and change moment maybe our Earth has faced, right? For the longest time, we were able to throw new and more at apply, solve, and change and just assume that it all blurred and people were fine. But to your point, when your support structures, you're literally the building you go into every day gets ripped out from underneath you, you are thrust into apply in a sometimes terrifying and very lonely way. And so it's, it's funny, I didn't hear the word class e-learning course uttered through most no. of March, April, and May, right? It was, no, yeah. And, 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 if this, and to your point, my dad always said, there's, there's something wonderful in everything. And it was a remarkable, I love the word to use, pivot for our industry, because all of a sudden, thank goodness, at least in, in many organizations, the leadership did turn to training, mm-hmm. did turn to L&D and said, look, we've got a significant problem here. And the conversation was all around performance or lack of or frustration to or inability to define what that meant now in this new normal. And I'm, a, I'm proud of our industry for being one of the first that was turned to. Not as crazy about some of the answers I've heard, <laughs> to be honest, but amazed at yours and your team and, and all that we've watched you so wonderfully do and lead through there. Scott, so let's start with your level first, if you don't mind. As a learning leader... If you can tell us a little bit, if, if it's okay, about the, the solution you journeyed into first. What was the area that you kind of tackled? And in this new approach, what were some lesson learns you had as a manager in guiding a team through this kind of transformation? The first step, really, and we're really, honestly, we're still in the throes of this, making plans for future, but we're not even quite there yet. I mean, we, we really are in this first phase. And that literally was getting our programs virtual ready making Mm -hmm. sure that they were adapted to this new virtual space. And so um, that really is where the gear methodology has entered in. And that's still the phase that we're in. We're right now adapting all of our programs to the gear methodology and making sure that all of the facilitator guides that we have and the activities that we have, it's all centered around that methodology. And so that really was the first step that we have taken, and we're still there. One of the things that I've had to learn, and it's been slow going, is that patience and persistence. Mm. <laughs> that mm. I, I know when I first started this, because the sense of urgency was so great, yeah. I wanted to just do it and do it quickly and get it done. 
And the reality is, is that um, it does take time. We're turning the Titanic here, not the SS Minnow. And so yeah. <laughs> it, it's going to take time and there needs to be patience with it and to, to understand that it's an iterative approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you embark on this journey, it's, it's not something that's a one and done. This is a long-term strategy of reshaping what L&D does. Those were two big lessons learned for me was you've got to take a step back, uh, reevaluate the the bigger picture of where you're trying to get to. And then what happened was super cool is once I did that, I started to see the team embrace that as well. And they started tackling tasks that were achievable today. They were achievable for next week. They were achievable for next month. And once we did that, we've gotten to a really good place where you know, we're on track to have all of our programs completely converted over to this new gear methodology by the end of November, probably. Wow. Um, and we've got a ton of programs that vary in length anywhere from four weeks to 12 weeks. And so oh it's a lot of content. <laughs> and so it's, uh, again, patience and persistence is what I would say I've learned the most. Wow. Really remarkable. Yeah, and, and so just for the audience, gear, gather, expand, apply, reinforce, receive feedback. That's the ad- adaptation that we've done with the five moments workflow learning for the shift to the virtual. And it, it, it's got you know, it's funny because, you know, everyone ran towards technology, as you mentioned, when this first hit, yep. a lot of the infrastructure wasn't there, let alone the ability to, to deliver. And then unfortunately, as we often do in our business, it was porting PowerPoints over and all of a sudden you had virtual instruction and it fell flat in its face. You know, the initial wave was thank goodness for installing this so quickly. The second wave, once it hit the beach, was, well, my gosh, it's not very engaging. It's not very good instruction. So I, I applaud your, your transition, but they had to be tough for your team. They were fairly grounded in, in a more traditional approach. Did you find them in their mindset shift, encountering certain challenges or things that they had to overcome to get here? Yeah. So a couple of things. Again, this is all language that I'm learning from you and Khan, frankly, and from the rest of the leaders in this industry that are down this journey further. But the two things that I keep saying to my team is methodology begets. And I know that's a phrase that you've used before, Bob, and it's so true. It's, you know, methodology begets the facilitator guide. Methodology begets how you deliver it. Methodology begets how you create the policy and procedure. And I think for so long, what we've done, which is my second point, is we focused on content over context, yeah. that it was about just churning out stuff. And we didn't think about the context of where the learner was at in their workflow. And because we didn't do that, we didn't understand the methodology that would drive the deliverables that we would need to create. And so it's, again, it's taken me a little bit of time, even myself, to think through that because I've been in the traditional L&D sense for a long time too. And it's typical path is something like this. I've got a problem. I need you to create this CBT for me. Um, The solution was already prescribed before we even understood what was going on with the worker. And so, and we would just do it. And again, I'm not blaming the business partners. I'm not blaming us. I'm just saying that's what we do right and yeah. and it's a complete flip now to say but first let's think about the context where is the learner when this happens so i know there was an issue here they did something wrong but what was going on mm. let's understand the flow of work before we start to prescribe what the solution is because frankly it might not be a, 
of CBD. It might not be some sort of training. Uh, it might not be a job aid. It, it might be, but it might not. And so let us understand that first. And I think we're starting to see that you can do that more quickly than I think we realized. I think for initial months of it, it was, yeah, that's just, it's going to take us so long to discover what that is. <laughs> and it really doesn't. I mean, it, if you're utilizing the right people, which is another lesson learned, if you're utilizing the right people, namely, not necessarily the SMEs, but the people who are literally doing the job, those business matter experts, you can really discover pretty quickly what's going on in the workflow. And that's where we need to start. And that mindset, the team, I wouldn't say they struggled through it, but it's just, it's, it's such an old hat to think about building content that yep. uh, to flip the mindset to context took us a little bit of time. Again, though, once they got there, they don't want to look back either. They're like, we are bought into this now. We can see that this is going to impact the learners in a much better way. It's going to get them what they need when they need it in a deeper way than we've ever been able to before. Well, you know, it's, it's exciting to hear you say that. And it's been exciting to watch you on the journey because I remember inviting so many SMEs into a room and the email that got them there said, you know, I want to talk about a course on leadership or we're going to put together an e-learning for you on sales. We put the content ahead of context and the SME or BME comes to the room already thinking chapter, verse, unit, lesson, not performance, behavior, criticality, outcome. Where do we screw up? Where are our greatest challenges? What are, why are we doing it in the first place? What are our business outcomes we're measured by if we, if we can prove that we perform better or not? Those weren't questions, Scott, I had or ever even brought up or put on a whiteboard in the first 20 years of my career. You know, so it's, it really is a fundamental shift. And there's a reason Khan called it rapid workflow analysis. Boy, you described it so perfectly. I've seen it a thousand times. If you do get those right people in the room and if you lead with the right context and questions, it really is a fairly rapid process and a rapid right. journey. Can you, can you share a little bit about what that's been like for the organization? You, you've done a few with some SMEs and BMEs. What's their reaction been to it? How have they taken to this or how have you helped them with even embracing this shift in the first place? Uh, as we've talked before, too, it is a process mm -hmm. and they need our help and educating along the way as well. So honestly, right now, a lot of it is we're super fortunate. We've been going through this journey and I've been living and breathing it for a long time. The business matter experts in the SMEs, they don't know that that's right. what we've been doing. And so one of the things that we've been doing is slowly socializing what we're doing with mm. those SMEs. So slowly start to talk to them about the performance support pyramid and why those different levels mean different things in terms of creation of a PNP. Slowly starting to talk through portions of the methodology of gear. So you know, if I'm having an opportunity to talk with one of the SMEs, I'll bring up the one to four ratio. So if I have an hour long lesson and the facilitator talks for 15 minutes, 45 minutes of that's going to be expand and apply and receive feedback. We're really trying to flip that, that ratio. So I'm slowly starting to educate those key stakeholders, the SMEs that we need to work with so that when we get deeper into going through the rapid workflow analysis, when we really start to dive deep into that next phase, that I'm hoping they've got the base knowledge that they need that's not going to be super unique for them anymore. Yeah. And the cool thing is, is that what 
the vast majority of feedback that I'm getting as we start talking through those pieces is I haven't heard anybody yet say I disagree. Everybody that I talk to is like, oh, that makes complete sense. They want more hands-on. So they've been telling me that forever. They want more hands-on. So it makes sense that that's why you would do that. And it's like, oh, that makes sense that you removed all of that knowledge piece in the PMP. You just kept the steps here because that's what I need to do my job. So they don't even know the actual the vocab, the vernacular that sure. we're using, but they're saying the words. They're recognizing that just intuitively this is going to be better for them, for their SMEs, for the people that they support as we move down this path. Well, in my journey, that's probably been one of the most rewarding part in my early years, Scott. I, I never had an SME leave the room going, well, keep me informed. You know, I, I'm, I'm anxious to see the see the next phase of this. They almost felt like they were doing me a favor. Right. In, right. in sitting in that room for two days or however long I kept them so that I could build this course that someday they may take. When you flip the conversation to look, what do you do every day? What challenges do you encounter? If I could do something better for you or, you know, all these kinds of things, you can't shut them up, frankly. Exactly. And, and they and they naturally gravitate towards something. I think you're right. They've asked for us for years in, in some remarkable ways. So with all this, then, what's your plan? What is your strategy, Scott, in going forward as far as your stakeholders are concerned, project-wise, team-wise, enterprise-wise? What are you thinking about taking this to the next level? Yeah, you know, I've got the vision. I want us to be a a center of excellence in the learning and development space. I I want us to be industry leading. I want that for the team. I've got all the components that I need. My team is amazing, extremely talented individuals that are very passionate and driven. And so that's the long-term vision to get to this, this level of center of excellence. And the why behind it is what's so important though. And it's because We care so much about the learners in our organization. We want them to perform better. We want them to be focused upon their performance. And again, why? Because we love our customers and we want to take care of our members, right? Those whys are what are driving what it is that my team is doing and the organization at large. And so, again, that's kind of the big vision. Now, how do we get there? We're moving into hopefully the next phase of really understanding and diving deeper into having an insight into our capabilities and Mm -hmm. what our training team is lacking in terms of those capabilities and then ultimately building plans to try to close that up so that we have the capabilities that we need to really dive into the rapid workflow analysis and understanding more deeply what it is uh, that people are doing when they perform. And then ultimately, to have true electronic performance support systems in place to help people. I see the future for this L&D team, for I think all L&D teams, we have to move into the workflow more than we are. There's a reason that the 70-20-10 framework exists, and we're good at the 10%. We got that down, (laughs) but... The 70% of times when people are learning the most is experiential when they're doing the work and we're just not there and we have to get there. And so ultimately that's the goal is that I have a team of people who are harvesting and curating and creating content that is contextually based in the workflow for our performers. 
and it's it's a I think it's a longer journey than I want because again I'm still practicing patience, but also persistence. That's ultimately where I think we need to get to. Ultimately, I think Bob, I think that's where all L and D needs to get to. Again, I think COVID has opened this up to say we need you to be more, and I believe that this is an opportunity to seize it for all L and D professionals. If there ever was an opportunity to pivot and do this, it's right now, and so. My mantra's kind of been 2020 has been so crazy anyways, but why not? Let's just yeah. go. Let's just go. Let's try it. You know, well, you know, so. opportunity and acceleration have been two words I have heard. I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of, of my colleagues across the globe, thanks to Zoom in the last several months. And opportunity and acceleration have been two remarkable words. And to your point, my friend, if we don't walk through that door, shame on us. If we emerge from this the same as we were before it started, we've missed something and we're not stepping up to what we're called to do. Every time I've tried this in the past, my gosh, pre-pandemic, I've had every obstacle thrown in my face by my colleagues in L&D. Oh, you know, we're so embedded in training, we can't change. Our budgets are already cast. You know, we spent so much on our LMS. We've got a brick and mortar classroom center. Our culture is so, they ask for classrooms all the time. I can never, I've heard all of that. Well, guess what? Again, since March, I've heard none of that. And we're not going to return to more than half of that. So to your point, my friend, and when I watched you miraculously bring your team through, and, and, and you don't give yourself no credit, you are much farther along than you think. And it's exciting to listen to them when you step back as a leader and, and as you do so brilliantly and, and let them shine, to hear their confidence, to hear their excitement, to hear how they've embraced this has been really remarkable. And you're going to emerge from this in a very, very different way. So last thing, we talked lessons learned in the whole deal. Again, every time we do these experience matters, we hear these remarkable stories. Your, you know, yours is yet another one. And again, many listening are, have not even taken that first step. They're not even socializing the conversation. If you could go back to the beginning, Scott, and talk to the earlier Scott, back in <laughs> March or February or so entering this, what would you tell yourself to be prepared for, to do differently? or maybe possibly just not to do it all, what would, what would be the things you advice you would give your younger self? One of the things was when we embarked on the journey, I erroneously believed that we would only need a, you know, an instructional designer or two and maybe a facilitator or two. And what I quickly learned was that if you have a team of technical writers like I do, and if you have a team of coaches, people who are responsible for you know, chairside coaching or closing skill gaps outside of a, a traditional classroom, get them all involved right up front mm. because there is so much intermingling yep. uh, that happens when you start to move down the path of moving into the workflow. And all of those skill sets are vastly needed to do that. So it took me, because we didn't do that, and I only had a select few people, I was at the same time learning all of this myself. I was trying to turn around and teach it to the rest of the team that needed to know it because I messed up and I should have had them involved. And now it was, okay, I know they need to be involved. And so I need to figure out how to get them this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it just was, I think it probably delayed things a little bit from that perspective it could have moved along quicker had I just added a couple of people. And I'm not talking 
an entire team, but a representation across the yeah. team yeah. Um, to be able to have that skill set. That's one thing. Uh, again, and I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse on this, but if I were talking to my past self, it really would be, you have to slow down. This stuff is not going <laughs> to happen overnight. And again, I think some of that has to do with just the traditional approach that I had before. You get a problem and you, you crank out a half hour lesson and, uh, you know, a couple hours and then it's done and, and you deliver it. And this is just, it's different and it takes time and it takes thought and the return is huge, but I would just tell myself to be, to be patient you know, it's, it's something because once we see the vision, the journey there seems so apparent. But if, if anything I have learned in I chuckled earlier when you brought this up and I've been at this way longer than you, is that I, I didn't realize how much I had been a part of making training the tip of the sword, mm-hmm. how much they knew me for that. They identified me for that. They, they wouldn't expect a different dialogue question or deliverable out of me or my team. Right. You know, right. So 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 why would they ever come to me and ask those questions? You know, change management is not something I ever remember taking a course in in my ID pedigree. But boy, this has thrust me into that discipline in some remarkable ways. Have you found the same to be the case in, in, in managing this, not just in your team, but at the enterprise? Absolutely. And again, it is my fault. I will say it's, it's my fault. It's all of our leaders. It's the leaders in L&D's fault that we got to that place because that's what we just continued to do. It was always just here, build me this and we would build it. And again, they were beautifully built, yeah. wonderful, wonderful things that we would do. And, but to your point, it's why would the conversation have sounded any differently? And, you know, I'll be honest, we're really at the early points of that as well, because I know it's strange for people to hear coming from a, a learning leader, talking about building tools inside of the workflow to support people while they're doing their job. I don't talk at all about the classroom there. I don't talk about yep. a lesson plan there. I'm talking about how can we help build support when and where they need it. And mm-hmm. so it's, it is a strain. I know it's sounding strange to people, but ultimately, again, I think that's where we have to go. We are the right group of professionals to do it. It's just figuring out how we help organizations and their SMEs and the stakeholders that we work with uh, understand that it, this isn't bizarre. This is the way it should be. And um, having those conversations, those are the types of words that I'm starting to hear now, uh, which is good. It's all positive. Well, my friend, we can go on forever. Kyle and I so admire your work. You are a, an emerging, pioneering, courageous young leader uh, in our business, and we need more of you. So thank you for your great work, for your time today, for your team and all they're doing there. We will be watching. And we'll engage you again to hear more about the journey down the road. But we can't thank you enough for taking the time today to share your journey. Appreciate it so much, Bob. I'm humbled. Well, you're welcome, my friend. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.